0: Tonight we are going to be starting a new series. Last week we, we finished up our series on the Holy Spirit. We're going to start a new series of studies. And We're just entitling this series, The Immediate Jesus. And what we're really going to be doing for the next several weeks, we're going to look at Jesus and His work, His life, His ministry. Uh, we're going to be looking at Jesus through the lens of the Gospel of Mark. So that's where we're going to be. So take your Bible and turn to the Gospel of uh, according to mark chapter 1 and uh, we're going we're going to talk a little bit about some um, uh, foundational things that's the best word for it tonight and and I think you'll be encouraged I'm excited about this study uh, the, the Gospel of Mark is unique among the four gospels they're, they're all a little different they're all unique in their own way but uh, the gospel of mark is unique among the four gospels for several reasons Uh it's unique because of its writer, and it's also be unique because of its audience, For the, the, the audience for which it was written. First, we, we talk about the author of the gospel, and it's in the name, Mark, or John Mark. And, uh, and, and, we, and we, I call him the writer the, of the gospel. I, I, you know, I suppose I could call him the author, but of course, the Holy Spirit's actually the author of it. Uh, I'm referring to the instrument through whom the Holy Spirit breathed this gospel account into, into, into existence. So you have John Mark, and, and John Mark shows up first in the, in the book of Acts. Uh, and we see him first when he, he made, <coughs> excuse me, he made an abortive attempt at missionary work with, the, with Paul the apostle and with Barnabas. And, and then in Acts thirteen thirteen we see that he turned back when they, when they reached the city of Perga and went back home. And so because of that, Paul, refused to take him on his second missionary journey. However, through the careful tutelage of Barnabas and through the maturation of, of discipleship, John Mark's life was recovered for the sake of the gospel and for the ministry of the gospel. Then in, later on in, in Colossians 4:10 and Philemon verse 24 and Second uh, Timothy 4:11, Paul makes reference in a positive way to, to this very same John Mark, and he even once he even saying, bring John Mark with you, I find him useful. Now, now here, here's what, we, what I believe, you can disagree with me. I, what I believe about the Apostle Paul is that he had a lot of gifts for ministry. I mean, he was an apostle, he was called by God, wrote much of the New Testament. But, but I would not say, however, that with all those gifts, that personal grace and a point of deep ministry was one of Paul's strong suits. Um, and so, listen, Paul was all about changing the world. And he, he, was, he was trying to plunge the short dagger of the gospel into the deep underbelly of the Roman Empire. And he knew that he only had a, a flicker of an eye in terms of time, in, in terms of human history. And so he just, he just didn't have time to waste on lightweights that went home to mommy when the going got rough. So for Paul to later on say, bring John Mark to me, I find him useful. That's testimony of, uh, of, of two things, really. One, it's testimony that, that Paul probably softened up a little bit in his old age, which, with which I'm getting in touch. <laughs> you know, uh, I'm, I don't know about you, but the second thing is I, I find in that is that uh, John Mark must have submitted himself to the cares, careful discipline of reconstruction, reformation, restoration to the gospel it's that, that, that over the years, under, under Barnabas' watchful eye and his careful discipleship, John Mark proved himself. You know, Peter, when we talk about Mark, uh, he, he referred to Mark as my son in 1 Peter 5.13. And Peter's reference to Mark as my son, now, we, we need to understand, he's not talking about biological, he's not making a biological statement, he's making, uh, that's accepted to be more of a, Of a Christian statement, in the the same way that I might say to a younger ministry, um, younger associate in ministry, I might say, "Well, this this person is my son in the ministry." You know, I have I have a, a mentor, Pastor Britton, who I worked with in Twin Falls, and I think of him as sort of a father in ministry in many ways. And so it'd be similar to that. So he wasn't Peter's biological son, but he he thought of him as his son in the faith, and. And, and uh, the reason that's significant is because traditionally, Peter's influence on Mark's gospel is is profoundly accepted worldwide by biblical scholars, that that they believe that Mark was writing much of what he wrote came directly from Peter telling him what, what he had experienced. But when you talk about, you know, he, he's Peter's spiritual son, but when you talk about Mark's family, we, we know that that Mark's mother was a profound Christian. We're confident of that. And we we know that uh, from Acts 12, 12, that John Mark's mother's name was Mary. We know that. And it it appears, however, that his father was not a Christian. Tradition, again, tells us that Mark's father was a pagan, that he was a Roman. And we also know family-wise, and I I resisted the urge to bring this up because I knew I was gonna bring it up in the section on his family, we know that that John Mark was also related to Barnabas when they went on that first missionary journey. Now, it's not clear uh, because the way the words are used can be interchanged a little bit. It's not clear if John Mark was Barnabas' cousin or if he was his his nephew, but he was certainly related in, in that sense of the word. And then when you talk about the gospel itself, it's unique because it was written for the Roman world. It is in character, style, and content directed to people who had lived under the dominion of worldwide Roman oppression. It has few parables, it has few long sermons, and it has very graphic uh, uh, accounts of deeds, of actions. It's very action-oriented, and miracles are, are, are listed in there. In fact, 40 times in the book it uses the Greek word euthos, Now, nobody here knows what euthos means because you don't speak Greek. In fact, biblical Greek is a dead language. Nobody speaks it. But but it can be translated as, as I think it's translated this way often in the King James, straightway. Or it can be translated immediately or forthwith, right now. And so that was a word of tremendous popularity in the Roman Empire because... When Rome wanted something done, it didn't want it done tomorrow or the next week. When Rome wanted something done, it wanted it done immediately. So it was a, a very popular word. Euthos was was considered to be fundamental to the Romans' understanding of obedience. That if you, in their understanding of obedience, you cannot be obedient without doing it immediately. That was the Roman mindset. It, it's interesting, I added up the, this week, there, there are 16 chapters in Mark and 678 verses, if I counted right. I might be wrong on that, but I think that's right. But when you, when you realize that the word euthos, or some derivative of that word, was used 40 times in 678 verses, then my poor mathematics tells me that the word use, is used an average of every 16 verses. Every 16 verses or so throughout the entire book, John Mark uses the word immediately or straightforward, forthwith or now. And he is carrying this idea of of, of, uh, this intense immediacy of what was taking place. And that's why we're calling this series The Immediate Jesus. There's another word that is crucial to our understanding of Mark. And it's it's in the very first verse and, and, and I want you to look at this and read this with me. But in the very first verse, you will see a word which we think to we, we tend to think to, and it is used with great consistency throughout the New Testament. But it is actually fairly rare and it's not always used in the same way, in, in it, but it's fairly rare in and of itself. Let's read it together. The first verse. It says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, I wonder if anybody can tell me which word in that sentence is not nearly as widely used in the New Testament as, as is commonly thought. Any, any, any ideas? Can tell me, anybody tell me what you think it is? What? Everybody said everything at the same time and I have no idea what you said. Gospel. Uh, gospel. That's the word. The word, let, let me give you some, what I'm talking about. The word gospel is never used in the book of James. It's never used in the book of Jude. It's only used once in the entire book of Hebrews. It's referred to in the books of Luke and Matthew, largely in the context of gospel of the kingdom. In the, in the book of Revelation, it's used only once in the entire book, and it is never used in any of John's epistles, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. Um, in, the, in the book of Acts, now listen to what I'm saying now, and we're gonna, I'm gonna, uh, I want you to see something there. But in the, in the book of Acts... It's, it's not used at all in the first seven chapters. N- now listen to this. It's not used in James, not in, used in Jude. It's only used once in Hebrews and once in Revelation. It's not used in the first seven chapter of the books of Acts. Now, ha- everybody got that? All right, now, now listen to this. The first time it shows up in Acts is in Acts chapter 8. Then it appears in chapters 14, 15, 16, and 20 it is used 13 times in romans 12 times in 1 corinthians 9 times in 2 corinthians and multiple times in ephesians colossians and 1st and 2nd thessalonians now what does that tell us L- listen to the books where it's not frequently used again listen hebrews james jude revelation 1st 2nd 3rd john However, it is used in Paul's letter to the the church in Rome, Corinth, Ephesus, Philippi, Colossae, and Thessalonica. It it, it is not used in the first seven chapters of the book of Acts, and it is used repeatedly in the last several chapters. Anybody have any suggestions, any thoughts on that? Think, Think about this. Gospel is a word that would have more meaning for the Gentile. See, uh, li- listen again to the, word, the, the books where it's not used. Hebrews, who's that written to? The Hebrews, <laughs> right, Jewish people. Re- uh, Jude, who was the brother of Jesus. James, who, he was the leader of the church in Jerusalem, uh, uh, as well as the brother of Jesus. Revelation, uh, which in, in my understanding of the book of Revelation, that is an Eastern mystery book. And, and Romans think in Western mindset. Jewish people think in an Eastern mindset. 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, written by John, whose gospel itself is remarkably different than Mark's gospel. You know, I mean, just turn, if you will, to John chapter 1, and, and I want you to see the difference between John's gospel and Mark's gospel. And you'll see a very stark difference here. Listen to how John starts his Gospel his story of Jesus the good news of Jesus Christ the good news of uh, of what what he came to do the gospel Here's how he starts in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God He was in the beginning with God all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made In him was life and the life that was that and the, the life was the light of men The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. It's beautiful. It's beautiful but listen, you try that with a Roman audience, they're going to cut your throat. Because they don't, they don't, they don't, that, will, that wor- will work well with Eastern philosophers. But Rome says, give it to me now. Immediate. And, and, and you know, listen, what's the corollary between ancient Rome and modern America? D- does, does the phrase bottom line mean anything to anybody here? You know, modern Americans say, well, get, get, just give me the bottom line. I, I'm sick of all the boilerplate language. What's the bottom line? Anybody ever heard the phrase, cut to the chase? Right? In other words, we're saying, I've seen this movie and, uh, and a thousand times, let's get to the action. Let's cut to the chase scene because that's all I really to want to see. All the all of the, the, that complicated philosophical and theological language at the beginning of the Gospel of John is, it's all right for Jerusalem. It's beautiful for the Jewish people. That's, it meant something to them, but, but, but don't bring that stuff to Rome because if it starts off like that, most Romans are, have already lost interest. It kind of sounds like America. So, you know, now, now listen to how Mark starts. Listen and see the difference. Listen to how Mark starts off his whole gospel. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now that's Roman. I mean, that's just straight to the point, cut to the chase. And that's Roman. So now I want to deal with this word, euthos, that I mentioned earlier for a moment, straightway, uh, immediately. And and I want to take just a few, I want to look at just the few places of the places where it's used, because it tells us something about the rest of the book of Mark. Uh, Mark 1.12. The Spirit immediately drove Him, Jesus, out into the wilderness. That, that's the beginning of the story of Jesus' uh, temptation in the wilderness. You remember that? And, 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 uh, but I want to look at that verse again, though. But I want to test our biblical scholarship a little bit here tonight, okay? You ready for this? It's not that hard. But look, it says, let's read it again. The Spirit immediately drove him into the wilderness. Now, aside from the word immediately, which word jumps out at you? Drove. That's right. Yeah. And because the other gospels, they all say the spirit led Jesus into the wilderness. There's a a big, big difference between being led and being driven, isn't there? I I mean, I don't know if you know the difference uh, between being led and being driven, but Man, just let you try to drive your wife out of Hobby Lobby before the, before the store closes. And, and, and then, you know, understand what it means to be when she leads you from store to store on a shopping incur- excursion. You know, you, you, there's, a, there's a whole lot of difference between being led and being driven. And, and the point I'm making with that is not that Mark is wrong or the others are wrong or anything like that. But the point I, I, I want to make is that the Gospel of Mark is a book that for, for all its brevity... Is filled with very very action-oriented language. It's a book that would appeal to this Roman mentality. It's not filled with long flowery discourses or high flown theological ideas. It's filled with very graphic action-oriented language and with gripping term- terminology. It's a very immediate language. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And the Roman reader would go, Yeah! All right, uh, chapter 1, verse 18 and 20. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee to, in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. There, there's a sense there of immediate obedience. Ver, verse 21. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. Verse twenty-nine through thirty-one. And immediately he left the synagogue and, upon, and entered the house of Simon and, and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they took him. Uh, they told him about her, and he came and took her by the hand. And the, the sense there is it's tied very much to that word immediately in the first the previous verse. So it's. A sense that he immediately came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. And the fever left her and she began to serve them. And then verse 42, and immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. And then chapter 2, verse 12, and he, now this is, he is Jesus, not the sick man. And he rose and immediately, excuse me, it's not Jesus, it is the sick man. "He, He rose and immediately picked up his bed and, and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Chapter 2, verse 8. And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in, in, in your heart? So immediate perception, immediate response, immediate leadership. Now, I'm coming to a point, but I want you to, to read these so you'll understand what I'm going to say next, chapter five, verse two. And when Jesus had stepped out on the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. So the immediate confrontation of evil and human need, chapter six, verse 27. And immediately the king, that's that's King Herod, by the way, " Uh, immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head and he went and beheaded him in the prison. Again, the immediate consequence of righteousness in an evil world. Turn to, to 14, way back to 14, verse 43. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a cr- crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. And yet again, the, the immediate confrontation, the, the, the present tense confrontation of evil with the Son of God. Now, Now back to chapter 6, verse 50. I'll just give you one more, and then I'll, I'll give you the point of it. it, it this is the uh, story of Jesus walking on the water, which uh, if you remember, they think he's a ghost. It's, it's actually, kind of, to me, kind of a comical story, uh, just a little bit, because he comes walking on the water, and they all like, fall down to the bottom of the boat, and they're screaming and yelling, It's a ghost! It's a ghost! And I just, it's just funny to me what, you know, to picture that. But this is what happened. Verse 50, chapter 6. For they all saw him and were terrified, but immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Now, what's the point of all these passages and why am I pounding and pounding away at that point? Uh, It it is this, the Jew was concerned with theology and genealogy. Who is he? Where, Where did he come from? Um, Where is he headed? What is he about? What's his background? What do the prophets say? Does he fulfill the prophecies? What is the meaning? What's the cosmic realities that are are involved here? But we need to understand the the Roman mindset, the Roman understanding of the world. What is the Roman understanding of the world? The Roman understanding of the whole world order, if you will, if I can use that phrase, is, is one of authority and immediate obedience. That's how they see the world. That's how their world is structured. See, when when Caesar in Rome sends a battalion of legionnaires to Gaul to to subdue a rebellion, he hands his staff into the hand of a general and he says, Go, I give you the authority that you are, as it were, me, myself. You are as me. You have the power to kill. You have the power to set free. You have the power to set up a king. You have the power to kill a king. You are Rome. Now immediately go and take care of this mess. That's the way the Roman thinks. And and that's the understanding of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. That Jesus is, he starts off, that Jesus is the Son of God. He is the I'm going to use a word and then make sure you understand what I mean. He is the fully empowered plenipotentiary. A plenipotentiary is just a big long word that just means a representative who has the full authority and power of the government that he is representing. And and he is saying that Jesus is the plenipotentiary of heaven. That he is the representative of heaven. The Romans get this because they know that their generals, that their leaders have been sent to other lands and they are sent as representatives with full power and authority of the Roman government behind them. That what they say, Rome it means Rome said it. And, and their understanding of this, they're, they're, for them to be able to understand, this is why Mark approaches it this way, because that's how they see the world, and now he's let them, letting them understand. Jesus is like that. He came from heaven with the full power and the full authority that 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 heaven that, that exists in heaven. He is the fully empowered plenipotentiary of, of heaven. And uh, the, the representative with all legal, military, and spiritual power to do immediately what God had told him to do. He, he's 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 and he's just gonna charge in and do it. And when he speaks, demons immediately obey. When he when he touches the sick, they immediately stand up and walk. And by the same token, you know, when Pompey rode into Germany and raised up the Roman banner and said, I'm here representing Rome, uh, what did the Teutonic tribes do in response to that? Well, they immediately hurled the weight of their opposition against him. And so they, when they see the immediate resistance, they understand that too. So a Roman understands immediate obedience, immediate authority, immediate opposition, and immediate conquest. That's what a Roman understands. Mark Mark is dealing with a people that live in a military world. There are Roman soldiers on every corner of the known world, and if if you attack a Roman soldier in the world, you attack Caesar. That's the world. That's their mindset. Now now listen to that first verse again. Go back to chapter 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, that's, that's all he says. Then he starts right in, straight away, just one line of introduction. Then, then read verse 2 through 7. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And we know... he who is mightier than I, the strap of, of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. So, here, listen, think about this. Because, you know, you, you compare this with some of the other Gospels. Mark here, he deals with the entire law and the prophets in two verses. Isaiah the prophet said that John the Baptist was coming to prepare the way. And, he, and that's about it. He says, okay, we dealt with that now. Now, now let's move on with Jesus. Because the Romans They don't need to know that. They don't care about the law and the prophets. They've never read the Old Testament. It means nothing to them. And and then he tells about Jesus coming to John the Baptist to be baptized. And as he comes up out of the water, the Holy Spirit descends on him like a dove. And a voice from heaven says, you're my beloved son. With you I'm well pleased. And and then that's it for John. That's it for the Old Testament. That's it for the prophets. Now it's all about Jesus. And verse 12 is where he he really plunges in. This is what it says. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now, now just look at that verse. Does that sound different than the temptation in the wilderness as it's recorded in the other Gospels? I mean, doesn't doesn't that sound different? First of all, he doesn't give a lot of the details, does he? But, but it sounds different. Think of the other Gospel accounts of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. What are the things that the devil tempts Jesus with in the wilderness? Loneliness, hunger, thirst, power, all of these things. He talks about 40 days and 40 nights and all this stuff. Well, listen, that, that's all Jewish talk. Because the Jews understand the significance of a lot of those things. They understand the significance, significance of 40 days and 40 nights. But a, but a Roman who sat in the cheap seats in the bleachers and watched a thousand contests in the Colosseum understands what? He understands wild beasts. Ooh, Jesus is out with the wild animals. Ooh, this Jesus, he's, he's in the arena of the cosmos. He's the gladiator, son of God. And, and I mean, you feel the difference in this? I don't think I'm putting, expo- you know, imposing too much of a different feel on this. That The language is different. It's just different. Now having said all that, I want us to concentrate, uh, go back and concentrate a little bit on that word gospel. Because it is uniquely used in chapter 1, verse 1 in a very striking way. So let's read the first verse again. Some of you are like, we keep going back to the first verse. Because there's a lot there even though it's so short. It says, the beginning of the gospel, or the good news, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, in what way is that unique? Well, gospel is used in two different ways in the gospel of Mark, but in the, in the other gospel accounts, it's really typically only used in one of those two ways. Mark uses it in, in, in two different ways. One is, and this is the way that other gospels tend to approach it. One is the gospel of the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom of God or the good news of the kingdom of heaven, the idea, the concept of the, of the return of God, the idea of all that the kingdom would mean. And he uses that some, and, but that's, that's really the only way it's used, for example, in Mark, or excuse me, in Matthew and in Luke. Um, however, Mark, he begins his whole gospel account with the centrality of the person of Jesus. He does not say the the beginning of the gospel of the kingdom. He says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. In in that sense, he is unique. And and, and listen, this this is not simply the theological good news of the kingdom of God. This is the gospel of a personality. This is about Jesus Christ the Son of God. And I think that, 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 that this is the very passage that endears the Gospel of Mark to me above all others. You know, my, my theological heart and my theological mind the, the, the leans toward the Gospel of John because it's so beautifully written. I mean, I, I, mean, I, li- I like, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was, was with God and the Word was God. I mean, that's just, that just rolls off the tongue. It's, it's, it feels good. It's sweet in the mouth but but you know what's it's just not basic enough to seize somebody's attention and and then you look at Matthew and we're not going to read any of this, put any of this on the on the board or anything on the t- on the screen but, but Matthew he starts off he gets really really technical cuz he's writing to Jewish, Jewish people so he says, this is how he starts off. He says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and the father Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah, and blah, 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 blah. blah. Just goes on and, you know, I mean, listen, listen. I mean, you, we're like a lot of the Romans we're because you just want to say, oh, please, Matthew. Just, just get to it, would you? But before Matthew finally gets cranked up, everybody else is halfway around the block. That's just Matthew and Luke. I love Luke, but I found that doctors move at their own pace. Right? They're going to discuss everything to death. Doctors analyze everything. Mark says, he'll say, Jesus spoke and he was healed. Well, Luke says, well, let's just discuss that for a moment. I want you to know exactly how sick he was. I want you to understand exactly what happened. And I want you to understand how he got healed and what the ramifications of that are. I mean Luke is almost like a doctoral thesis on the on the the account of Jesus' life historically. However, Mark, there's just something about this gospel. Mark, he just kicks the door open and says, this is about Jesus. You know, he just announces it flat-footedly. No meandering gene- genealogies, no theological explanations. He's not dealing with the issues of the pre-existent, co-eternal Word of God who was with God before Lucifer fell. He's not dealing with that. He just says, this is about Jesus, the Son of God. Who came to earth bearing the emblem of God as a gladiator representative of heaven to establish the kingdom? And immediately he, he did his father's will, and immediately he healed, and immediately he confronted evil, and immediately evil rose up against him, and immediately he dealt with, with beasts and the wild animals, and immediately he was driven by the Holy Spirit. There's just something about this gospel that I like. It's, it's just sort of rough and ready, probably because I'm an American. Because really, the American experience and the American culture, in in this way at least, is very much like the Roman Empire. You know, maybe after all, we are all Romans. I don't know. But Mark identifies from the very beginning the centrality of the person of Jesus. It's not about an idea to Mark. It's not about theology. This is about Jesus. You know, the, the older I get, the simpler my gospel gets. It's just not all as complicated as I thought it was when I was younger. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved along with your house. That's it. Jesus, the Son of God. I like, I like the clarity of the focus. And that's the focus that we're going to take in the next several weeks. We're going to be zeroing in on who Jesus is. The the message is about God. The message is is of of eternal life. The message is a message of hope and salvation. However, the the focus is Jesus, his work, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his return. It's the good news of Jesus. Now, Now, one last thing about this verse L- listen to, to, to these verses. I want to I hear you. I want to listen to two ways you could read the passage. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, listen to it like this The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Does that kind of hit differently? See, I think Mark is also stating in verse 1 of chapter 1, this is the gospel, not a gospel. It's not just some shred of good news that if added up with all the other shreds of good news throughout the tattered garment of world religions, it all adds up to some sort of Baha'i oatmeal or something. This is the gospel. This is about Jesus, the Son of God. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, and now, listen to this. Before anybody winces at that, I want you to know, sometimes this world, the people in the world they will say, that's so arrogant to say that this is the only way. But that is not arrogant and it is not presumptuous. There are two ways you can think of the uniqueness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The first is the way the world kind of often describes it. It's is a kind of chauvinistic self-ownership, you know, or we, you say, we found the only true gospel and you didn't. Nani, nani, boo, boo. Right? And, and I have heard that in, evangel- in evangelical circles. If not those very words, I've heard the spirit. I've heard that, that, that feeling behind it. I mean, haven't you Haven't you heard some, some people act like that? But, and I felt that uh, from people at times. However, there's another way... In which this is clearly stated and another way we can understand it. There, think of it this way. There's a guy who's drowning in the middle of an ocean, and a ship pulls up beside him and he says, "Throw me a line, Throw me a line, I'm drowning." And so they throw him a life preserver tied to a rope, and they say, "Grab that and we'll pull you in." And then the man says, "Throw me another one. I don't like this one. This is the wrong color. It's too big, it's too small. Why, I don't want to, give me, throw me three of them and let me choose the one I like the best. And the ship's captain says, That's the only life preserver we have. Slip it, uh, your arms through it and we'll pull you in. Are, are you daft? You're drowning. We're trying to save you. And the man says, No, 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 no. You have to do something else. I don't like this plan. And the ship captain says, That's the plan. Now, who's being arrogant? The ship's captain or the drowning man who wants a multiplicity of choices? The one who says, no, I should be able to choose my way is the one that's arrogant. Not the one who says, this is what has been offered. I think one of the points that Mark is making from the very beginning here is that in the same way that, that some primitive Teutonic tribe in the Black Forest who sees the plenipotentiary of Rome who rides in, in there with a battalion of soldiers and then he says, I am Rome. I represent Rome. You see this staff that's in my hand? You see the seal that's on my shield? It says Rome. And then this primitive warlord from the Black Forest says, well... We, we'd like to talk with somebody else. We, we won't discuss this with you. We won't make a treaty with you. We don't like you. And then the, the warlord, warlord, warlord uh, proceeds to shave the man's head, uh, beats him up and sends him back to their own Rome with his tail between his legs. Now, if that happens, what do you think Rome is going to do? They're going to send overwhelming forces. They're going to burn your house down. They're gonna sell your children into slavery, they're gonna destroy your country, they're gonna chop down your forests, they're gonna sow salt in your soil, they're gonna dismantle your, your 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 buildings, your culture and your language will never be heard from again. See, see, the statement is is clear in the first verse. This is the answer of God to a humanity that is sinking in the abyss of sin. The gospel. The Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now and I don't want to sound overly militaristic about this. Obviously it's, it's, it's the same Jesus that we have in Matthew, Luke and John. It's, it's just that as we begin, I feel like I want us to realize three fundamental realities about this gospel. The first is that, is that it was uniquely produced by the Holy Spirit in a, uh, through a unique instrument to speak to a specific time and culture which by the way in many ways is more closely related to our own culture than any of the other three gospels secondly i want you to realize that it is clearly a graphic and energetic portrait of jesus and third that it is a uniquely direct approach to the person, work, and ministry of Jesus Christ as the fully empowered representative of heaven come to reclaim rebellious territory. Remember, remember, we are seeing Jesus now as the validated messenger, the the authoritative servant, if you will, of of headquarters, the Son and God, but still sent. And, And we see his authoritative ministry over demons in verse, verses 23 through 27 of the first chapter. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Now listen to this next sentence. Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out in a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed so that, the, so that they questioned among themselves saying, what is this? A, a, a new teaching with authority. Now, I want to pause there for a minute because I, I, I read that and I say, wait a minute, wait a minute. What new teaching did he teach? Nothing. I mean, can you read a sermon there? There's no sermon there. What new teaching did he teach? He didn't teach anything. He commanded a demon and... The demon immediately obeyed him and they said, what is this? A new teaching with authority. It's interesting to me, isn't it? It appears as though God is making a statement of authority and power and those who are observing it are dealing with theology and issues of questions. The point here is that demons obey because he is the authoritative son of God. And they're saying, whoa. I wonder what kind of doctrine He teaches. What's He teaching? Then look at the last part of verse 27. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey Him. And at once, that, that's, that again, that's translated at once, but that's the that same word, euthos, or at least the der- derivative of it, immediately His fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Gal- Galilee. We also know he had immediate power for healing. By the 32nd verse of the first chapter, we begin to see mass healings. Verse 32, that evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he treated many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Now, I, I want to take a moment and just deal with that last little part of that verse where it says He would not permit the demons to speak because they knew Him. Because um, uh, I want to get some feedback from you. I want to get you involved in this. Why do you think Jesus wouldn't let those demons speak? I mean, they, they knew who He was, and, and, it, and, he, and He was who He was. If that's true, then why wouldn't He let them say it? Who has an idea? Okay. They would usurp usurp as authority. I think that's a a good reason. uh, um, I think that's a big part of it. But what else? Okay. So it was an unclean. I'm repeating for those that are on live stream. If if it was an unclean spirit, who would believe an unclean spirit? Okay. That's very good. Anybody else? No other ideas? Some are like, I don't know. The devil's, the devil's a liar, right? That is kind of kind of related to. Really, they're all kind of a little bit interrelated. But uh, it, well, it, let me give you, give you. I think you're you're right on, on those things. I think one reason is is that it would it would accelerate uh, what his fame, it would accelerate his ministry to a point that maybe he was trying to keep things slowed down because it would have exposed that he was God too early and that would have caused a lot of problems. I mean, remember they're dealing with Jesus and the demons are relating at a supernatural level in a physical dimension and everybody else just sees a guy, you know, on the floor having convulsions and Jesus is talking to, commanding, and rebuking demons. And the demons understand that the spiritual reality that this is the Son of God, that He is God and he is, He's come to, to cast them out. I, I think that's, that's one possibility in this. But, and then, and then um, um, uh, you know, some of you, uh, you, you really brought this, uh, this point out too, uh, Jesus would not allow rebellious demonic spirits to announce the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. You know, I think that all of you kind of tied this together. I think the, everything that everybody shared was kind of related to this one. I mean, think about it like this. If a Roman detachment rides into a Teutonic village and announces Rome is here, they don't want you know, some vagabond people from this village saying, this is Rome, this is Rome, everybody obey them, everybody obey them. Why? Because it detracts from their authority, their preeminence, and the, the, the stability of their office. They want to assemble to the village themselves and say, I represent Rome. They, they, they want the, their spokesman to pound the staff on the ground or to pound the drum and say, Hear ye, hear ye, hear ye, this is the representative of Caesar Augustus who sits on the throne of Rome. Jesus, I, I think you're right. I think He said, I don't want demon spirits announcing my authority and the fact that I represent Heaven. Uh, but, but I think there's, there's uh, uh, related to all these things. There are all these things. It would have accelerated the ministry to, to the extent that it would endanger the time frame. Uh, In God's plan because he needed three years to accomplish his plan fully. Jesus was born specifically at the time he was born. He died at a set time when the time was filled and so he didn't have time for that. Uh, The demons were going to announce things in the wrong way at the wrong time. And then, but I think, you know, tying all these things together, I think the most important part is, in my opinion, that Jesus had reserved for us the power of announcement. And I'm not going to have demons uh, announcing the gospel. That's reserved for the saints. That's reserved for the people I'm saving. That's not, even angels don't get to do that. So why in the world would he let demons do what angels are not, are, are not called to do? He says, no, no, that's for, uh, that's for my children. That's for my family. They're the ones that are going to announce that. I think that's a big part of it as well. Let, let me bring this to a conclusion. A, a young minister uh, went to pastor a small church in Georgia. Uh, there, there was a ma- man named Bill in that congregation that just sort of adopted that young preacher. The, the, the preacher was like 21 years of age when he moved there, and then this man, Bill, was like 86. And so th- this young man, he was very young. He just he was just out of seminary, and he was very unsure of himself. He actually felt like he had no more business pastoring a church than a billy goat. And probably, actually, he was, he was probably correct in that. But Bill realized how the pastor felt. and Bill, he, he, had a, uh, he was a third grade dropout. He, to sign a check, he put an X. That was Bill. But he realized that this 21-year-old really didn't have the sense to pastor a church, let alone the Spirit. So, Bill adopted the young man, and, and the young man just adored Bill, and they just fell in love with each other, beautiful uh, friendship that they had. Well, one day the pastor was sitting on Bill's porch and, and he said to him, you know, Bill, pastoring this church is such a huge challenge. And Bill said, Bill said to him, why is that? What, what is the challenge? And he said, I- I've never preached before. I- I- I've never preached before. And I came here and now all of a sudden I have to, I- I'm having to preach a sermon two or three times a week, every week. Now, now the truth was, this young man hadn't even read the Bible all the way through. He, 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 was, he wasn't even sure what he really believed. He had gone to a horrible liberal seminary with atheist professors, and now he's in the backwoods of Georgia trying to pastor this little church, and he was laboring to come up with sermons. Well, Bill heard that. He, he said, well, what, what's the issue here? He said, well, Bill it's knowing what to preach and bill said jesus he said well i know that bill but i but i have to have things to say and bill said jesus And he said, Bill, there's just no use to keep saying that. I understand what you're saying. Of course, that's what everybody in the whole world preaches. But I have to have something to say or people are not going to show up. And Bill said, Jesus, 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 preach Jesus or we'll all perish. Well, that's great counsel. I I think if I'm ever invited, that's not going to happen. If I'm ever invited... To, to preach at some Bible college or teach preachers or something like that, I think what I'm going to do is I'm just going to stand up in the pulpit and just say, Jesus, 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 preach Jesus or they all perish. And then I'm going to say, now bow your head in prayer and let's close. You know, I just want to end it right there. I I, I want to know as much as I can. I want to I want to learn as much as I can. I have a hunger and a desire to comprehend the truth of the scripture But you know what? I don't ever, ever, ever want to forget that this is about Jesus. Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus, the conquering king. Jesus, uh, our deliverer who cast out demons and they immediately leave. Jesus, our healer. Jesus, who lived three years as a human being. Jesus, who suffered and died. Jesus, who arose. Jesus, who ascended to the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Jesus, who calls me. Jesus, who sends me into the world to announce his lordship. Jesus, who will receive me under himself as I enter into heaven. This is the gospel of jesus the son of god let's pray together father i thank you for this gospel i thank you for sending your son and lord don't ever let us forget that this is not about theology it's not about programs it's not about rules and regulations this is about jesus and i pray god that you'd help us to build our lives upon that truth that this Gospel is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the strong Son of God, the gladiator Son of God, the one who came into this world with the the full legal power and and spiritual power of heaven. And and as you came in, Lord, you are the, 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 the representative of heaven and you came into this world and in your power, You cast demons out, you heal the sick, and you're the same Jesus now as you were when you walked the face of this earth. Remind us, Lord, this is about Jesus. When we wake up in the morning, remind us and help us to say, today will be all about Jesus. When we lie lie in bed and we put our head on our pillow at night, remind us, this is about Jesus. Jesus when we're preparing to eat our meals, when we're doing our shopping, wherever we go, whatever, whatever we're doing throughout our life, remind us constantly, this is about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We thank you for it. In the strong name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.